And we are going to be uh, looking at a second week in uh, the third season of our Called Out series. And it's the, the series or the, the section that we're going to look at is us being the church. So remember that uh, during adult Sunday school, uh, we're going to look at the next aspect of the one another's from Scripture. It was a great time last week of just uh, searching the word together. And I welcome you to join us as we uh, put more uh, kind of flesh on the bones uh, during that time. And last week, we talked about going through the motions, kind of doing the things that God would call us to, but without a heart of worship. Uh, and today, though, we're going to go from the idea of going through the motions to the recovery of the supernatural, uh, that we need and know we need God's divine power, that God is over and above the normal, ordinary functions of this world. God's above all. He's sovereign over all things. Uh, and so when something happens that you can only ascribe to God's power, we call that a miracle, right? Right. Okay, uh, it's God's supernatural power at work. It's a miracle. It's outside the normal, ordinary function of things. It's a miracle. Do you live knowing that you need a miracle of God to see change, any change in your own heart, in your kids, your grandkids, people, friends, family around you? Do you live knowing that you need a miracle for things to be transformed. I think we can easily boil this idea of following God uh, to a, a few basic things that we do. And when we do them well, we think good things happen. When we do them poorly, we think they're not so good. But when we boil things down to the what we should do, and if we do them, good things happen, then we put ourselves in the driver's seat and we, we forget the idea that we need a miracle for heart change to occur. We need a miracle for God uh, to become uh, more and more Lord of our life. And so we're going to look at a passage that talks through the supernatural power of God that is at work in our salvation and in us by his spirit. As we kind of, hopefully as a people, that we would be defined as a people that are struck by the sense that we are powerless without the power of God. Would you stand as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Uh, we're going to look at this whole chapter, but I'm going to read the first 10 verses to get us rolling. And uh, we stand as a way of expressing our submission to the word of God. He speaks, we desire to hear. So follow along as I read. And I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, we are doomed to pass, uh, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. 
For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. For these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you today and we long to hear. We long to hear your word, your wisdom. So, Father, I pray that, it, uh, that you would, would work by the Spirit to do something that is not natural. Father, would we uh, put our wisdom down and we would, would we hear your wisdom from your word? Would you, by your Spirit, give us an understanding? God, thank you that our hope and our faith rests on your power. So, Father, challenge us in, us in that. For anyone who has not come to faith, God, I pray that you would draw them this morning, that today would be the day of salvation. God, would you move with power and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Hugh Litchfield is a pastor, and he wrote the book, uh, Visualizing the Sermon. And I haven't read it, but I, I read an excerpt of that uh, this, uh, this uh, week. And uh, he wrote about an encounter with a young man that had uh, been in uh, his church 10 years prior. And so 10 years earlier, the young man was facing possible jail time over tax violations. Uh, he, and that led him into a depression and alcohol dependency, which turned to uh, jeopardizing his marriage and relationships with his kids. His life was, was falling apart. And 10 years later, uh, now Dr. Litchfield explains an interaction with this young man. So 10 years ago, the guy's life has fallen apart. He attends Litchfield's church. Uh, now, fast forward 10 years to, uh, to this interaction with this young man coming up to this pastor. He came up to the pastor and said, I want to thank you. And the pastor, well, for what? And he says this, one Sunday, which was 10 years ago, you preached a sermon about taking responsibility for our lives and, and the brokenness, not to blame what we've become on somebody else. And God used that sermon to speak to me. That afternoon, I got down on my knees and I prayed to God. He says, my life was changed that day. With God's help, I got out of trouble with the IRS. Um, I saw victory over, over the bottle, meaning his alcohol uh, abuse. My marriage uh, is, is amazingly better, and I want to thank you. So the, the preacher went back to his study, just astounded that 10 years later he would get that report. And uh, he, he figured that he would just pull out that sermon and take a look at it. And in that day and time when, during his ministry, he would preach a sermon and then write a note on the top of it, kind of like how he, think, how he thought it went. Okay? This was his note 10 years ago. Dead in the water, no one listened, a complete waste of time. And I think that can be probably the sentiment of anybody who has taught, anybody who has tried to explain the truth of the gospel to somebody, any parent trying to bring wisdom to your kids, you've probably uttered something like that. Man, that was a total waste of time. But yet, 
The power of God is at work in what we do. When we step out and do what God calls us to do, the power and the efficacy of that is not based on you and your delivery, you and your power and your wisdom and your ability to connect and understand. It's on, it's on the power of God. So that we could leave a conversation, we could leave a time, a sermon, a teaching time, and say that was a waste of time. And God uses it for his most profound kingdom purpose. How does that work? It works only in the fact that you and me, or you and I, are not the ones who hold the power uh, to the things that we are called to. We are a people whose salvation rests on the power of God. Okay? I wrote that. I'm actually going to change it. it. That is a true statement. <laughs> but I want us to look at that we are a people whose faith rest on the power of God because we tend to say salvation that's a thing that happened way back there and that happened one time I'm good that was God's power but now I live as if it's on me that's nonsense yes you were saved by the power of God yet you live by the power of God as well and so when we're talking through that I'm I'm looking at our hope and our life and our and our faith in the power of God it rests there God makes us alive. God gives anybody life uh, in him. God allows us to understand. And so when Paul comes to these people in Corinth, how does he come to them? Verse 1. When I, Paul's writing this, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't try to trick up the message and, all right, we're going to put, you know, this, this apologetic argument together. And uh, he, he didn't come with lofty words. Uh, keep going in verse 3 in the second half of 4. Uh, it would be right if I was in the correct chapter. Anyway, uh, yeah. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. In my speech, in my message, were not in plausible or persuasive words of wisdom. Interesting. He basically is saying he came to the people of Corinth in the most simplistic delivery style possible. He didn't come trying to uh, wow them. Uh, he came in a weak, it, it, with a weak delivery. But again, a weak delivery, even Paul doing it on purpose doesn't rob the message of its power because the power doesn't come from how well you or I say it. The power comes from the living God. Peter picks this up. Actually, this theme is all throughout the scriptures. But in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, he picks this message up. And uh, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Basically, he, he, Peter, when he comes to the to people that he's speaking the gospel to, he's like, this is what I saw. That's all I can tell you, is I saw the power of God on display. And then God, in his, in his power through the Spirit, takes the message of the gospel and does something life-changing with it. 
We talked about uh, Litchfield a second ago. John Stott was one of probably the greatest preachers of the, uh, the 1900s, uh, just an amazing uh, expositor of God's word. And one time he was in uh, Sydney, Australia, actually in 1958, he was there. And uh, the day before this meeting, it was multiple meetings of, of preaching. And, uh, and, and so the day before, he learns that his father had died. And as he was nearing the end of uh, this time of, of this seminar, this conference, he was losing his voice. And, uh, and so this is how Stott uh, describes that final day of the outreach there. He says, I was, uh, I was already late uh, that afternoon and a few hours before the final meeting, so I didn't feel that I could back away or pull out. So I went to the Great Hall and asked a few students to gather around me. I asked one of them to read 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my own experience, that God's strength would be made perfect in his weakness. So Stott, uh, when the time game came for him to preach, he preached out of Matthew 7 in the narrow way, in the wide way. Uh, he said this, I had to get within a half inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel like a raven. <laughs> Not even sure what that sounds like, but that sounds horrible, right? I didn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in total monotone. And then when the time for people to respond, the invitation came, there was an immediate response. And you know, it was the largest response of any other meeting that they had done that week. That was in 1958. He said he's, he's gone back to Australia 10 other times uh, at the writing of this, uh, this account. And every time somebody would come up to him, do you remember that night at the Great Hall? And they would say, I was converted that night. And so I think we, I think human wisdom says we have to do things in such a way that it's attractive to the human mind and human wisdom and compelling. And I think when we go down that road of that, that is what is going to bring somebody and draw somebody to know Christ, we've missed it entirely. It is the power of God at work. We are powerless Yet when we think down those roads, I think we claim some sort of power. We are, what, what, what's our motto? We are a gospel community for our community, right? Uh, that we are being transformed by the, go- by the power of God. That's the gospel. And that we are a community of people defined by that. And for us to be changed, it is the power of God. That's our declaration. That we don't come... We have our life together. Come be like us. That is not our message. If you know us for about 10 minutes, (laughs) that's a good thing. Okay? We come saying that we are transformed and softened and, and moved by the power of God. For people around us to be changed, it's the power of God. It but here's the thing: what if we actually believed that and not just said it? What would change in our lives if we truly believed that any change in us, in our friends, and in our community was as a result of the power of God? And you're saying, well, I do believe that. Do we? If we truly believed 
that the softening of our kids' hearts is the result of the power of God, what would change in the way that we live? Would we move from obsessing over our tactics to constantly casting our cares before God? I think we would. Our desires in thinking through this is that we would move from the assumed presence of God to a desperation for the power of God. That we would move from, yeah, 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 God's, God's here, God's at work, kind of almost like, yeah, flippantly, yep, yep, to knowing our utter dependence and desperation for him, that we are looking for God to work. A, a, a desperate people, what do a desperate people do together? We pray. In people that host prayer meetings, they know this answer. What is the least attended gathering in most churches? Prayer. And something is completely amiss there. And before you say, wow, he's really getting on us, let me stand right in the front of the line on that one. I'm the first to think about, all right, how can I outthink something? How can I devise a plan? How can I, you know, uh, ask uh, different people their thoughts and get, get wisdom and all of that? And at times, uh, prayer is not even in the back seat. It's not even in the car entirely. When you think about your kids or think about work or do we live as people of prayer? We say we're desperate for God, but we live and we, we, our, our lives are structured in ways that surely doesn't necessarily show itself that way. You know, we were talking this morning during prayer, we were praying for this service, that God would do something uh, in our midst by his spirit. And we were talking, you know, if you go into somebody's home and spend time with any family, hour or two, you can quickly understand and uh, you can quickly see what they value, right? You just look around and just watch the family function. And you're like, oh, that, those are the, that's the value, the functional values of a family. Same is true of a church. If you come into a church uh, and you spend time with the people of God, it's pretty easy to see what that group of people values. What would you say Grace Point values? That's a humbling question. Would we be described as a people desperate for the living God? Because we would say, yes, for a drug dealer in Colombia, I shared that story a couple months ago, for him to come to faith in Christ, that's a miracle. But the conversion of the child raised in church, that's been in church every Sunday, that is just as much a miracle for that child to, to come to faith in Christ as is the drug dealer in Colombia. But we, we say that, but we don't live like that. We don't live desperate for the power of, of God. And I think that's on an individual basis, but what do we look like as a people? So we are a people uh, who uh, salvation and faith rests on the power, but we are also a people that are powerless to change anyone's heart. We're powerless uh, to cause anyone to know God. They simply can't comprehend Him, they can't relent control of their lives, and we are powerless to accomplish the mission to which God has called us to. That drove me crazy as a pastor for years. I am powerless to do the very thing I'm called to do. 
I think there was like three times where like I'm done with this pastor thing because of in that premise probably at the very core of it I can't do what I'm called to do and yet that is the freeing nature of the gospel we can't do what we're called to do therefore we are desperate for the power of God we are powerless and that is good news. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, Chuck Parker, uh, he says this, we can raise the sail, but the wind still has to blow. Okay? There, there's a sense where we are called to do certain things. God says it. You know, worship me. Uh, praise my name. Speak of who I am to people. God calls us to do these things. There's a, there's a call there and an expectation that we would uh, follow him, him, him in obedience yet what are we called to do and then what is God called to do we can raise the sail we can do what he calls us to but what God must do is make all of those things effective if God's not in them they are uh, there really is no power it's not because we have done them that they have power it is that God works in and through all these things. We are people that are powerless. And here's what's wild, is the message that we have is a message of foolishness. Did he, did he just say? Yes. Now, I would say it's perceived by the world as foolishness. To the rational mind of the wisdom of this world, like this might be the dumbest thing on the face of the planet. The message of the gospel to the world is a message that is perceived as foolishness. Look at verse 2. This, Paul comes to them, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Knowing nothing but Jesus Christ. We're comfortable with that, but him crucified. For us, that's so familiar that I, I think we miss the reality of what's being said. He's saying that Christ crucified, being killed on a cross, is the demonstration of power. Rational, worldly wisdom, that's a disconnect, right? Being killed on a cross does not equal power. It's the exact opposite of the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says the one who conquers does not end up dead on a wooden cross. That worldly wisdom would say the one who conquers rides in in triumphal procession. Yet the crucifixion is said to be a demonstration of power. Look back in chapter 1, verse 18. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay? So if you take out the parentheticals and all that stuff, that the word of the cross is the power of God. That's a really staggering thing. The one who conquers... All enemies is the one who has been conquered, is what it feels like. The everlasting God that never sleeps, he dies, but he does not stay dead. And so in verse, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, chapter, uh, uh, verse 23, Paul goes on. So one twenty-three says, But we preach Christ crucified, 
which is a stumbling block to, to Jews, it trips them up, and folly to Gentiles, it makes no sense, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The idea of the gospel makes no sense to the watching world. And so in these debates between um, thinkers uh, that defend and, and uh, speak to the existence of God and the, uh, they debate atheists, and, and some of these are very, very well known. And Richard Dawkins, uh, he's the author of the book The God Delusion. He was debating John Lennox, uh, both professors at Oxford University, both brilliant minds, uh, and they were debating the existence of God. And at one point, this is what Dawkins, who is the atheist, says about Lennox, the one defending the existence of God. This is what he says. The atheist says this. He believes that the creator of the universe... The God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the, phys the physical constants, that, that this genius of mathematics, meaning God, and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust, have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. And I would say, yes, that's exactly the message of the gospel. Probably with not all the pejorative <laughs> descriptors, but the message of the gospel is that the eternal God came to the earth that he created, to the people that he created, that rejected him as God, went and took on human flesh, suffered as we suffered, and went to the cross to pay for the sin of the very people that rebelled against him so that they might be redeemed and brought back into fellowship. Yes, that is the gospel. And it is absolute foolishness to the wisdom of the world. But Paul says in, in later in chapter 1 that God gives us the, the wisdom of the gospel to shame the wisdom of the world and to reverse it. And so what, what does it say in verse 14 when we think of like, wow, how could this be when the world says this? The natural person, this is verse 14 of chapter 2, the, the, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The cross is foolishness to the world. But not only do we have a, a message that seems like foolishness, but it is the wisdom of God. But we also have a message that must be revealed. That we are a people who understand God because of the power of the Spirit. Okay, well, look at verses 6 through 8. How do you and I understand anything about God? That's the question. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That the wisdom of God to save people by sending his son to the cross to die and rise again, that had been hidden uh, for 
uh, for much of human history. And, and even now it's hidden from the rulers and the wise among uh, the people of this day and time. Verse 10 says, then how would we even know it? If it's hidden, how would any of us understand it? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What's wild is that anything that you and I know about who God is, anything we know about what salvation is, anything we know about how uh, someone who is an, just gripped with arrogant pride could, could move to humility. Everything we know has been given to you by the Spirit. You did not figure it out, and neither did I. The beauty of the gospel is it was revealed to us, told to us, so not one of us can claim any pride or arrogance. I went to seminary. I studied a lot. But how many people have studied for their entire life and become complete atheists in rejection of who, of who God is? Our study does not get us understanding necessarily, automatically. It is the Spirit of God. Study is wonderful when it is centered on God's Spirit and say, God, teach me your word. Even our study has to be that of, of humility. So it is given to us by God. And so in light of that, uh, Paul quotes um, in verse 9, he quotes Isaiah 64. So, um, yeah, who knows where I put that. Okay, um, so in verse 9, he says this. He says, uh, for no eye has seen, no ears heard, nor the mind of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a quote of Isaiah 64. Did I put that up there? Hey, I did. And for, for uh, of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. G.K. Beale would say there's a distinction between Paul's quote of this and Isaiah's usage of this. And the distinction is, uh, go back, uh, we're not there yet. Um, the distinction is, is that Isaiah is saying no one has heard. Paul is, no one has understood. Paul asks the question, who understands the mind of God? And the expected answer, according to Isaiah, is no one. But what is Paul's answer in verse, 20, in verse 16 of chapter 2? But we have the mind of Christ. The expectation would be nobody understands God, but yet, if you know Christ, you understand who God is and how he works because that has been given to you by the Spirit of God. The anticipated answer is no one. Yet, here we are understanding the things of God. So then we get to G.K. Beale uh, here later in his commentary. He says, Paul's, Paul uses the text, meaning Isaiah 64, to promote systemic humility among the proud Corinthians. Our wisdom, our knowledge, our study, that's what is supreme. And anything we know about God has to be given to us. And so we come in weakness. We come with one, knowing that we are powerless. Let me close with this, that I was raised in, uh, in high school. Um, I was a part of probably one of the most dynamic student ministries I've ever seen. That, and not because it was the biggest, 
Not because we had the coolest programs, but because I saw God work. I saw God come down to uh, a, a youth pastor who, when he preached his sermon to be ordained, he had three points, and he forgot to even preach his second point at his ordination sermon. He was done in eight minutes. <laughs> they still ordained him. Uh, but that's my youth pastor, you know? And, uh, and so what, out of that time, out of him pouring into us and pointing us to Christ, uh, five different pastors came out of that ministry within a very, very small uh, stretch um, tons of leaders in God's church, elders, uh, people in ministry, uh, ladies that are, that are deeply involved in, in ministry in all facets of the church, and, uh, you know, people that were bold in their faith during their high school years. They read the scriptures. They loved God's word, uh, and, and God continued to allow that to flourish through their lives. The most common question when people would come around us, they would ask Craig, what are you doing? You know, what's the secret sauce, right? And he did what everybody else does, you know, spend time with students, you know, read the word together, teach the word, get everybody together. But the thing that I think made that a combustible engine of the power of God was Saturday mornings. Saturday morning never hit the youth calendar. But Craig and his friend Chuck, who was an elder in our church, they got together every Saturday morning at 6.30 and they prayed for, for every student in that ministry and they prayed for the ministry and they prayed that God would do something amazing. And they did that for six or seven years together. What was he doing? He was praying. Because you can't look at the ability of, of the spoken word and say, that was it, man. He just, he could, it wasn't there. At times it was comical. But God used that ministry in amazing ways, in fruit for decades. Why? I would submit it to Saturday mornings. Are you and I willing to say we are powerless without the power of God? Are we willing as a church to say this building is a waste of time unless the power of God resides there? And are we living in such a way? Are we functioning as a church in such a way that really express that? Or is our hope and our planning and our skill and our niceness and all all the different things that are wonderful, but they ultimately are powerless without the Spirit of God coming in power, bringing people to faith, and letting people know and understand the living God? The humility that which we have is the beauty that we get to present uh, to a watching world. We don't know anything because we figured it out. God showed it to us, and I show you the gospel as well. And in that, God does something miraculous. Let's pray. God, would you, uh, would you bring us to a place where in a room of such gifted people, Father, that you would bring us out of the place where we trust in our strength and our ability and our understanding, our knowledge, our wisdom. Father, bring us from that to where we trust in you, in you alone. God, that, that we know no matter what we do, it's powerless unless the, the Spirit comes and, and works in our midst. 
Father, thank you that you have given us an understanding of who you are and how you have worked to, to uh, transform this world. Yet, God, I pray that none of us would have an arrogance in seeing that, but a deep humility that we've seen you work in our life, we've seen you work in other people's lives. God, would you come in power? Would you change us? Would we be a radically different people as a result? And God, we just thank you and uh, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.